So if you reach for your Bibles for our scripture reading and turn to the book of Luke. Stand together as we read. We'll be reading Luke chapter 23, verses 44 through 49. If you don't have a Bible with you today, you can find it on page 608 of your pew Bible. As Pastor Bruce concludes that series that he's been talking about, Cries from the Cross. We'll look at a cry of confidence this week, and it can be found in Luke 23, 44 through 49. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. So when the centurion saw what had happened, he glorified God, saying, Certainly this was a righteous man. And the whole crowd who came together to that site, seeing what had been done, beat their breasts and returned. But all the acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Father, we we come to you this morning, and we just ask that we would have open hearts and minds to learn what we we need to learn um, from Jesus' cry on the cross. Thank you for the cross and what it means for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we call it the day that Jesus was crucified, Good Friday. But it was just another day for the Roman soldiers, except this time they were crucifying three men on the eve of the Jewish Passover. That meant the city of Jerusalem would be clogged with religious pilgrims and the message would come through loud and clear, don't mess with us. Take a look what happens when you do. Things had started well enough. The three men were crucified at 9 a.m., the normal starting time. The crowd was larger than usual, mostly because of the man in the middle, the one they called Jesus of Nazareth. The man in the middle looked half dead before they nailed him to the cross. After all, when you think about the scourging he went through, it's easy to understand why. And so the first three hours were no problem at all. The crowd and soldiers mocked and ridiculed Jesus, but he simply said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. One of the criminals being crucified with Jesus blasphemed him. But the other criminal acknowledged his sin and even asked Jesus to remember him. And Jesus replied, Today you will be with me in paradise. Then Jesus looked down and he comforted his mother Mary when he said these simple words, Woman, behold your son. And then he looked to his beloved disciple John and said, Behold your mother. But everything changed at 12 noon. Suddenly everything went dark. The sun disappeared and a a thick darkness fell over the land, almost as like you could feel it almost. It lasted for three hours. Something terrible had happened to Jesus during those three hours. Like an awful burden had descended upon him that caused him great agony, great suffering. And that's when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You didn't have to be a doctor to know that Jesus was about to die. His chest heaved mightily with each breath and the death rattle was in his throat. When he said, I thirst, one of the soldiers dipped a sponge in sour wine and put it on the stalk of hyssop branch and lifted it up to his lips and moistened them. Jesus' head dropped, he took another breath, and then he mustered all his strength and he shouted, it is finished. A moment passed, 
And then he took one final breath and cried out, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then Jesus bowed his head and he died. So what do we make of all this? The seven cries of Jesus from the cross. What should we make from Jesus' seventh and final cry from the cross? Well, here's a suggestion, I believe. We can summarize Jesus' seventh cry from the cross this way. If anything, it was a cry of confidence. It was a cry of confidence in his Father, in God the Father. Notice again how Luke tells the story of the last moments of Jesus' life. Look what it says again. Zach read it for us, but look at it again. Luke 23. It says, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, the sixth hour in our time frame would be 12 noon. And there was darkness all over the earth until the ninth hour, which again, in our time frame, would be 3 p.m. And then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Now, why did that happen? It was, it was symbolic, and it signified that now act, we had access to God. Before, you had to go through the Old Testament priest and the sacrificial system. But now Jesus had paid the penalty of our sin. His sacrifice was once and for all. And so now, we could come to God through the Father. Every one of us has that opportunity. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. And then look what happens next. In verse 47, very interesting. It says, now when the centurion saw what had happened, what did he do? He glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. If you go to the other gospel accounts, they give a little bit different version of it. Uh, In fact, in Mark chapter 15, 39, it says it this way. Now when the centurion who stood opposite of Jesus saw that he cried out like this and breathed this last, he said, Truly, this man, this man in the middle, the man on the cross, was the Son of God. Now, this is interesting, if you just, what this guy is saying here. Because as a Roman centurion, this man had obviously seen hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions. I mean, it was the standard operating procedure for executing criminals in the Roman Empire at that time. So, the Roman centurion had seen Many, many crucifixions before. But this one was unlike any he had ever seen before. This was nothing, there was nothing to compare it to. It was unique, it was different. So he said, certainly this was a righteous man. Or truly this, was the, this man was the son of God. So what does this Roman centurion see in Jesus' crucifixion that he had not seen in hundreds before this? Well, I think he sees, for one, Jesus forgive his enemies. Now, that's unusual in and of itself, would you say? I mean, who does that? Who of us even does that now? He saw Jesus offer salvation to a criminal. What criminal deserves anything? But what do we deserve? He sees Jesus comfort his mother when he is the one who's suffering and is in pain. And yet he focuses not on himself, but on his own mom. He sees Jesus become sin for us and forsaken by God. He sees Jesus ask for something to drink due to his extreme suffering. And then 
he hears Jesus shout, it is finished. Well, what is finished? And Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now this was not normal. People don't die like this, especially in a crucifixion. So this must have been the Son of God, he reasons. I think we can summarize Jesus' death by three words. If you want to fill this in, it's coming up on the screen. Three words to summarize his death on the cross. Jesus died, first of all, voluntarily. He died reverently, and he died confidently. Now, let me just give a brief description of each of these words here. First of all, Jesus died voluntarily. That is, nobody took it from him. Jesus laid it down, and he offered it up. What held Jesus to the cross was his love, not the nails in his hands and his feet. In fact, you can go back to the Gospel of John, John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, and Jesus says this, Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one, he says, takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down. In other words, I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He laid it down on Good Friday, and he took it up again on Easter Sunday. Jesus gave up his life voluntarily. Nobody took it from him. Second, Jesus died reverently. Do you see this in his last cry here? What do I mean by reverently here? Well, Jesus, in this last cry, he's actually quoting Psalm chapter 31, 5, or at least a portion of that verse, and he uses it as a prayer when he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. It's interesting, Jewish mothers would teach their children to recite this very verse before they went to bed. In fact, for many children, it was the very first verse of Scripture they would learn as a kid. Uh, this prayer, it, it's similar to the prayer many children used to learn uh, growing up and used to pray before they would go to bed, to, even in our culture. Are you familiar with that prayer? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray thee, Lord, my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray thee, Lord, my soul to take. And so as Jesus is about to die, he quotes Scripture. He's not thinking about the pain. What is he doing? He's focusing on God himself and on God's word. And then third, Jesus died confidently. It says Jesus cried out in a loud voice. He's not shouting in anger. He's not shouting in despair or bitterness. He's not shouting in defeat. He is shouting in victory. It's a confident trust in God Almighty, in God the Father. So what should we learn from Jesus' final cry from the cross? What should we walk out of here this morning with? What do we make of all this? Well, I want to suggest to you that there are three things Three truths that we learn. These three truths we need to hold on to when we're facing difficulty in our own life. In fact, we can even make application when we're even facing death as well. Three truths. Now, obviously, in a crowd of this size, I don't know what's going on in everyone's life here today. But I do know this. I know there are some of you who are facing great difficulty. You're facing circumstances in life that you would rather not face. And I also know that this cry teaches us, whether you're facing difficulty, whether you're facing defeat, whether you're facing discouragement, whether you're even facing death, 
there are three truths to hold on to, to embrace, to grab a hold of, and remember with everything you have. Are you ready for them? Let's look at first number one. And that is, I have a heavenly Father who loves me. What a beautiful truth. I have a heavenly Father who loves me. Now, don't minimize this. Because in our Christian circles, it's cliches. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. But folks, it's a beautiful truth. It's packed full of meaning. Jesus begins his final cry by calling God, what? Father. This was Jesus' favorite title for God. It spoke of the intimate relationship that had existed for all eternity. In Jesus' first cry from the cross, it had been, Father, what? Father, forgive them. And now his last cry was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But in between, Jesus cried out, do you remember? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus called my God, or called God my God and not Father, because what was going on? If you were here for that message, remember that in that agonizing moment when Jesus became sin for us, God's holiness demanded that he turn away from sin. And so there was now a separation between Jesus the Son and God the Father. And in that moment, oh man, Jesus calls him not Father but God. But that time of judgment for sin is now over. The penalty for sin is paid once and for all. The sacrifice that Jesus was on the cross has now been accepted by God. And so whatever happened in those three hours of darkness and separation is now over. And the relationship between God the Father and God the Son is restored. And Jesus yields his life to the one he calls Father. So what do we know about God as our Heavenly Father? Well, if God is like a lot of earthly fathers then I think most of us would say, no thanks, I don't want any part of that. Because how many fathers do we know, or perhaps even your father, are unreliable, they're inconsistent, they're absent, abusive, you name it. But folks, listen to me, God is not like our earthly fathers, is he? So what kind of father is God? God is a close father. He's not distant. He's not absent. He won't abandon you. He's not abusive. He is close. God is a consistent father. He's always there for you. He is faithful even when we are not faithful to him. God is a competent father. That is, he can handle anything you throw him in your life. He has the power to help you with everything in your life. And He will help you if you trust Him. And God is a caring and compassionate Father. He loves you more than you can ever imagine. And He cares about everything that's going on in your life. In fact, I love what the Bible says in Psalm chapter 103, verse 13. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear Him. Listen, If you don't take away anything else, take away this truth. That as a child of God, you have a heavenly father who what? Loves you and loves you dearly and cares about you. Loves you more than you can imagine. And so Jesus starts off by calling God 
Father to remind us that no matter what I am going through in life, I have a Heavenly Father who is perfect, and He loves me more than I can imagine. The second truth is, whether I'm facing difficulty or death, remember I have a Heavenly Father who can handle anything I give Him. He can handle anything I give Him. Jesus cries out, Father, and what's the next three words? Into your hands. Into your hands. Isn't that a great image? Into your hands. I love that phrase. It's a beautiful expression of care and security and power. And 2,000 years later, people are still using this phrase in commercials. Do you remember the motto? It used to be the motto. They still have it on their website. They don't use it in their commercials anymore. But the the motto of all state insurance, right now their commercials are, you know, mayhem. You know, the mayhem dude, you know, that's crashing and tearing up your house and everything else. But, you know, a few years ago, what motto did they used to have? Yeah, you're in good hands with Allstate. You got it. So what does that mean? What are, the, what are they trying to communicate by that? Well, it means you can trust us. It means we're going to take care of you. It means when you're in a crisis, you're in good hands with Allstate. Jesus prepared for his death by acknowledging that his future rested in the good hands of his Father. In the hands of the one who can handle anything that we give him. Peter said that Jesus was crucified by wicked men in his sermon in Acts chapter 2, 23. Listen to what he writes, or says, he preaches this actually. It says, this man, speaking of Jesus, was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But before Jesus' death, Jesus repeatedly said he was being delivered into the hands of men. He told his disciples in Matthew 26, 45, see the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. So now think with me for a moment. Imagine this. For the past 15 to 18 hours, Jesus has been in the hands of sinners. Sinful hands did what to him? Beginning with Judas, they betrayed him. They bound him and led him away. Sinful hands beat him and slapped him in the face. Sinful hands formed a crown of thorns and shoved it on his head. Sinful hands stripped him naked and they mocked him. Sinful hands nailed him to the cross. But there comes a time when the hands of men can do nothing more to you and God's hands have the final say. So at long last, Jesus is now back in his father's hands. Back in 2001, and Zach, you may remember this because you were with me, we took a, a MAC campaign, uh, our, our youth did, with another youth group, and we went to the Bahamas, and we're flying uh, there, and what airport were we in? Do you remember? I think it was Nassau Airport there in Bahamas, or was it Atlanta Airport where we had a layover? But anyways, we're going through the airport. I think it was one in the Bahamas. We're going through the airport, and I see this big dude. I mean, Big, big man. Nassau, yeah, you remember, John was there. And he finally turns around, and I recognize him. And I, Zach's with me, John's with me, and I'm like, Zach, look who's there. John, that, do you know who this is? That's Paul Silas. Now, for those of you that aren't basketball junkies like we are, Paul Silas 
uh, had an awesome NBA career. He's 6'7", and just huge. He played for the, he won three uh, NBA championships, two with the Celtics and one with the Supersonics when they used to be in Seattle. And at the time when we saw him, he was the coach of the uh, Charlotte uh, Hornets when they used to be in Charlotte. So anyways, we're walking through the, hotel, uh, the, the uh, airport, and we see him. I said, Zach, we got to go meet this guy. I mean, come on, let's go. So, you know, we walk up to him. Of course, he's standing up here to me. And so I tap him on the shoulder sheepishly, you know, you know back. And he turns around, and I just, I stuck out my hand, and I, I shook his hand. And what I remember, his hand just engulfed my hand. It was so big. It was huge. You know, it's like he gave new meaning to palming a basketball. I'm like, yeah, no wonder he could do that. And, uh, and so it just remember his huge hand. So have you ever thought, how big are God's hands? The hand of God. You ever studied that phrase? You can trace that all through the scriptures. The hand of God, the hand of God, the hand of God. So what do we know about the hand of God or God's hands? Notice this in your notes here, coming up on the screen. God's hands are big enough to bless me. They are more than big enough to bless me. Jesus often touched people in order to bless them. He would lay his hands on people and bless them. The Bible says in Psalms 139, 5 through 6, You go before me and follow me. You place your hand a blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. Listen, it is a wonderful thing when the hand of the Lord is on your life. You're protected, you're anointed, you're blessed. So how big are God's hands when you commit your life into them? Well, they're big enough to bless you. Big enough to bless you. Second, number two, God's hands are scarred enough, though, to never forget me. They're scarred enough never to never forget me. Do you remember the story of Thomas, one of the disciples? The, the, the same disciple, uh, Thomas, the one we often call who? Yeah, Doubting Thomas. And at first, Thomas doubted the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He was just a little skeptical when the other disciples came to him and told him, Hey, Jesus is alive! And they're all excited. And, and he wasn't there in the beginning, didn't see Jesus, and he's just a little skeptical about that. I don't blame him. I mean, somebody told you somebody rose from the grave, we'd be skeptical too. But do you remember what Jesus told Thomas? He invited Thomas to see for himself that he was alive by touching what? Yeah, his scarred hands. Jesus told Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 27, reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Listen, those scarred hands were a visual reminder for Thomas that Jesus was alive and he would never forget Thomas. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 49, 15 through 16, Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? And the obvious answer is no. A nursing mother is not going to forget her baby. Though she may forget, I shall not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are ever before me. In other words, the Lord is saying to us, if you want to know how much you matter to me, just look at my hands. See these nail prints? 
that's how much I love you, and I'm never going to forget you. Listen, you may be going through a very difficult time in your life right now. And when we do, it's easy to think God has what? He's forgotten me. He doesn't care. He doesn't really understand and know what I'm going through. But God has not forgotten you. God's hands are scarred enough to never forget you. Number three, God's hands are strong enough to keep me eternally secure. God's hands are strong enough to keep me eternally secure. You see, once you put your life in God's hands, nobody can snatch you out of them. Is that not cool? That is awesome. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 10, 27 through 30. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, even Satan. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let me give you two illustrations. The first illustration is uh, when my boys were smaller, uh, you know, isn't it? It's kids. Do your kids, do they like money? Like nickels, dimes, quarters, and, you know, even like it's, man, this ain't worth much. But if it's shiny and silver, they want it. So it's kind of fun to, you know, tease them, play with them a little bit, put a quarter in your hand, and close your fist. All right, you can have it if you can get it out. And, of course, Tyler back then, or Jack, man, they're just clawing at you, you know, trying to rip open your hand. And could they ever do it? No. Even if they both ganged up on me. They couldn't rip it out of my hand when it was closed. Well, folks, listen. Man, that is us in God's hands. Nobody can snatch us out, not even Satan. Now, and then, here's the cool part. God's hands are strong enough to keep me eternally secure. And every dad knows this illustration I'm about ready to share here. Again, when my boys were younger and we would go swimming, and I'm sure some of you dads have done this before, you get in the pool and what do you say to your kid? Especially when uh, my Jack and Tyler, you know, when they were like three, four, five years old, you get in the pool and you're at the edge and you step back a little bit and they're on the edge and you say, jump. Come on, Jack, Tyler, jump to me. Jump to daddy. I'll catch you. I won't let you drown. And, of course, what's going through their mind? Yeah. Uh, is my dad strong enough to hold me up? Is, you know, is he really going to save me and not let me drown? And, of course, you know, you finally coax him in, and Tyler would come run and jump, and you catch him with your hands. I pretend like I'm going to dunk him and then keep him up, and I don't. He, and then he knows, oh, man, Dad, yeah, he's, man, he's money. He's not going to let me drown. Jack was the same way. So then what do they want to do after they know that Dad can be trusted? They want to do it 100 times over and over again. In fact, they want you to back up so they can come... Superman into the water, and, you know, right to you. Why? Because you're not going to let them drown. You can be trusted. And in the same way, our Heavenly Father is waiting for you to just jump into his hands. The Apostle Paul says it like this. When he was going through one of his most difficult times in life, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-9, through 9, listen to what he says. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. So he's alluding to a difficult time. Now, we can all relate to that. And then he says, we were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. 
You ever felt like that? Indeed, we felt we had received a sentence of death. You ever feel that way? But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So whether you're facing difficulty or death, remember, you have a Heavenly Father who can handle anything you give Him, including your life. You're in good hands with God the Father. Which brings us to the third truth we learn from Jesus' final cry from the cross. That is, I have a Heavenly Father who can be trusted. I have a Heavenly Father who can be trusted. One of the great questions of life you eventually have to answer is, who are you going to trust? Who are you going to trust? And the way you answer that question, who are you going to trust, will determine so much in your life now and for eternity. It will determine whether you're satisfied or unsatisfied, whether you waste your life or make your life count, whether you spend eternity with God or separated from God. It all depends on who you're going to trust. So let's just consider some of the options that we have to us. The options of who to trust today in our culture, in our world. You can choose to trust the government, but they're kind of at an all-time low on the credibility level for right now. So not too many people trust them. You can choose to trust the media, but they rarely give you the full truth, and it's biased. You can choose to trust popular opinion, but that changes by the minute. So most people choose to trust who? Themselves. But how's that working for most people when they choose to simply trust themselves? Listen, I suggest if you're going to entrust your life and your future to someone, you better choose someone who, A, loves you and has your best interests at heart, B, knows everything, C, is perfect and just, and D, will never lie to you. Well, that kind of limits your options to one person. His name is God. Listen to what Psalm 33, 4 says about God. It says, for the word of the Lord holds true. And we can trust everything he does. No wonder Jesus said at the end of his life, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This word commit, it means to entrust or to deposit something valuable for safekeeping. It's what you do when you take your will or your car title or if you're lucky enough to pay off your house, your, more, your, your deed to your house, or perhaps you have a valuable possession from your grandmother, like a, a ring or, or something of that nature. It's what you do when you take one of those items or all those items and you go to the bank and you put them in what? A safe deposit box. Why? Because you don't want it to be stolen. You don't want it to be burned up. You don't want it to be damaged. You want it to be guarded and kept safe. And what was it that Jesus commits to his father? It was not his body. It was not the, this outer shell that we have. That would remain on the cross for a little while longer. It would be pierced by a soldier's spear. And it would later be prepared for burial and placed in a tomb. It was his spirit. The innermost part of his being that Jesus placed into his father's hands for safekeeping. Mark it down. Whatever you entrust to God, listen, he's going to take care of it. You can count on it. 
So here's the question for us this morning. What do you need to entrust to God today? What do you need to commit to God's hands today for safekeeping? I'll tell you what it is. It's whatever you're worrying about right now. It's whatever you're fretting over and anxious about. It's about whatever your mind is going to even as I speak. It may be a problem, it may be a difficulty, it may be a relationship issue, it may be any number of things or all the above. So what are you worrying about right now? What is it you're fretting about? What is it your mind goes to when you put your head down at night to sleep and you can't sleep because your mind is drifting to that? That's what you need to entrust to God. Why? Because He alone is trustworthy. Think about it. In many ways, worry is just practical atheism. Worry is acting like God doesn't exist. Worry is acting like I don't have a Heavenly Father who loves me and who can be trusted. Worry is acting like you're a spiritual orphan and your life is all dependent on you for survival. Worry is really just another form of unbelief. It's saying, I don't believe all the promises God has made in His Word. I don't believe God is trustworthy enough to commit my problem, my difficulty, my circumstance, my life into his hands. Listen, the antidote to worry is simply trust. And God is trustworthy. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Timothy 1, 10 through 12. He says, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. And of this gospel I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. That is why I am suffering as I am. Because I'm on mission for God. Yet this is no cause for shame. And hear what Paul says now. Because I know whom I have believed, and am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Now, of all the fears that trouble the heart, perhaps none is greater than the fear of death. We fear death because we think it's so final. We think it's the end. Or as Mel Blanc used to say, and he was the voice behind all the cartoon characters and Looney Tunes, that's all, folks. In fact, when he died a few years ago, do you know what his family put on his tombstone? That's all, folks. But how mistaken so many people are about death. Listen, we think we are going from the land of the living to the land of the dying, but that is just not so. We are going from the land of the dying to the land of the living. And the question is, which living are you going to? We're either going to be living separated from God or in the presence of God. So let me leave you with two truths to remember as we conclude. When it comes to dying, here's the first truth to remember. Remember that your spirit lives on for eternity. Your spirit lives on for eternity. One author said it this way, death is not the end of the road, but simply a bend in the road. 
And the, the second truth to remember is, if your spirit does not go into the hands of God for safekeeping, it will go into the hands of God for judgment. It's been said that there's a tribe in Africa in which when a believer dies, they do not say he departed, but rather he arrived. I like that. How true that is when we trust Jesus as our Savior, the one who conquered death and rose again. Yes, death still comes to us all. We cannot avoid that. But for those who know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, listen to me, death is just the door we pass through to the presence of God. Yes, we die like the rest of mankind, but we have a hope that transcends the grave. And you say, well, what makes the difference? It is Jesus Christ and nothing else. In Him and through Him and because of Him, death has lost its fear for those who know Christ as their Savior. But folks, listen to me. The same hands that speak of hope and comfort in Jesus Christ, also speak of terror and judgment apart from Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10.31 sums it up or warns us, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Listen, the hands that are today outstretched, inviting us to receive His mercy and forgiveness, are the hands that will bring judgment on the person who rejects his son, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. So don't be wrong. I implore you, I urge you, don't be wrong about whether or not you are in God's protective hands through faith in Jesus Christ. John Huss, a name some of you may be familiar with, others you've never heard of before, but he was a martyr for Christ who was burned at the stake for his faith. And when John Huss was condemned by the Council of Constance in 1415, the bishop ended the ceremony with these words, and I quote, Now we commit your soul to the devil. You know what John Huss said to that? As they were marching him to to be burned at the stake, he said, I commit my spirit into the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Unto thee I commend my spirit, which thou hast redeemed. John Huss knew that no man can commit us into the hands of the devil if we have committed ourselves into the hands of God the Father. He was burned at the stake. But folks, listen to me. He was triumphant in the knowledge that he belonged to Christ and Christ belonged to me. And that is the question of the day. It really comes down to that question. Do you know for sure that you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you? In other words, do you know where you will spend eternity when you die? Listen, Jesus died on the cross for a reason, for a purpose. It was so that you could have eternal life through him in the presence of God Almighty. And Jesus even says when he was here on this earth, not just eternal life, but that you could have life abundant now here on earth. A life filled with meaning that goes beyond what the world is searching for. A life that the world does not understand. 
And yes, included in that life is the gift of eternal life that begins the moment you receive Christ. So do you know for sure that Christ belongs to you and you belong to Christ and that your destiny when you die is in heaven in the presence of God? Let's pray. With your heads bowed, before we pray, you know next Sunday is Easter, but there's no reason to wait until Easter to give your life to Jesus Christ. And I don't know what you're going through, but if you've never invited Jesus Christ into your life, man, you can do so right now. We're going to have a response time. And during this response time, you can go to God the Father in prayer, asking Jesus to save you and forgive you of your sins, simply telling him and expressing your heart's desire that you want to trust him with your life. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for a hope that transcends this dying world because of your son, Jesus. We live, we die, and through Jesus Christ, we pass into your loving hands. So, Lord, teach us to live each day as if it were our last, because someday it will be. And, God, we pray that during our response time, we would recommit our lives to you, believing that you will be faithful to us in life and death and in the life to come. We pray for those here who have yet to put their faith and trust in you. Lord, I ask that you would open their eyes to their need for Jesus and that you would give them the grace to receive your son by faith. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the one who conquered death for us. Amen. Listen, the praise team's going to sing a verse here, a chorus, and as they do, I want to invite you to respond right where you're sitting. If you have yet to receive Christ, now's the time. At, your, at the pew there, just go to him in prayer. Express your heart's desire. For those of you that are already believers in Christ, what is it that you're all fretting about and worried about? What is that thing that you need to commit into God's hands? Now's the time to do